Museum and Library. This is Stories from the Stacks. I'm Amherst Williams. And I'm Ben Spoon. Each episode, we sit down with one of our visiting researchers and talk to them about what they're finding in our collections. My name is Nicole Mahoney. I'm a PhD candidate in American history at the University of Maryland at College Park. Nicole told me about her efforts to understand early American elites' obsession with French high culture in the early Republic. So I applied for um, a dissertation fellowship. I'm the Henry Beeland DuPont Dissertation Fellow here at the Hagley Museum and Library. I'm working on a dissertation that argues that in the second half of the 18th century, British colonists and later young Republicans became enamored with aristocratic French culture. And this is at a moment when American colonists were fighting for sovereignty. They're engaged in creating a disparate culture in the face of European empire building. And rather than looking to Great Britain, leading American elites looked to France for cultural signifiers that would legitimize their power and authority during the revolutionary era. And I think there's a real sort of biting sense of irony here because Americans become so enthusiastic for French aristocratic culture and gentility coming from these epicenters at Paris and Versailles. And it almost threatens to outweigh their allegiance to the rhetoric of Republican egalitarianism that they're spouting during the revolutionary era. And it's surprising how eager elite Americans were to embrace French aristocrats, French you know, refugees from the French Revolution, refugees from the Haitian Revolution, um, you know, elite planters, elite um, you know, aristocrats and nobles who are fleeing revolutionary who are fleeing the revolution and they end up in America in places like Philadelphia and New York and these you know, American Republicans are just so eager to learn, to know the French fashions. They want all the latest French dances. They want to, they start using words like cuisine um, at parties. Why? Is, it, is some of this like a self-conscious rejection of anything British? So they go for France? My idea and the one of the major arguments in my dissertation is that signs of British gentility had become so widespread and so common in the North American colonies. Things like most people owned a a tea set, you know, ceramic tea sets, and most people could sort of buy less expensive clothes that looked very expensive and they could sort of masquerade as British gentility. But my major argument is that the modes of French high culture and the sort of exquisite pleasures and the very nuanced high society was out of reach of most ordinary Americans. So by adopting elite French culture, the highest echelons of American society could sort of put put gentility out of the reach of ordinary Americans. So this was a way of creating a superstratum of class. You know, it's a new way of class formation by excluding people who had already mastered or masqueraded as British gentility, and that French high culture is more difficult to imitate. Were, were sort of these average Americans then able to tack onto that eventually? Or? Okay, so my argument is that the highly complex codes of etiquette, the criterions of performance, the principles of French gentility, 
differentiated to a greater degree the members of the American elite from those from the middle ranks, from the ordinary folks. And ordinary folks could never sort of manage those high levels and the accoutrements that were associated with French gentility. And this is sort of what signifies American elites in the post-revolutionary period. And it's sort of ironic, isn't it? It's sort of surprising to think how eager young Americans were to embrace gentility from a corrupt monarchy, you know, that they looked to France, one of the most corrupt monarchies in, in sort of in the 1790s, I should say, um, as, as sort of how they're going to differentiate themselves. Yeah, and I think of, you know, European powers at the time of Britain as being relatively more, um, I don't know, democratic than France by a pretty wide margin. Mm-hmm. Is any of that fascination with the France and the French also related to, like, the Enlightenment, with the, you know, French Enlightenment thinkers? So I think what inspires elite Americans to look towards the French rather than the British in some parts is the idea of pleasure that comes out of the Enlightenment and about sort of recognizing your self-worth, recognizing yourself as an individual in society, and that your individual happiness and self-pleasure is sort of the highest degree of human happiness. So out of those sort of individualistic ideas of humanism, from the French Enlightenment, Americans are inspired to indulge rather than you think about the sort of stoic puritanism of earlier decades of American colonial history. But here we have this sort of complete indulgence and pleasure and fine taste. And it's okay to to sort of show off. So I'm curious about some of what you've been looking at because you mentioned, um, you know, of course, with uh, refugees from the French and Haitian revolutions. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a lot of that here. Well, perhaps the most famous French refugees here are the Duponts. Oh, yeah. Well, of course. <laughs> <laughs> the Duponts who, you know, around 1800 needed to get out of France and, and come to the United States. So I did a bit of research in the Dupont correspondence papers, but I was most interested in the book collections um, that the Duponts brought with them from France. I read a report that said they brought, there's there's different accounts that said they brought somewhere between 70 and 400 boxes of books. My guess is that it was closer to 70, 100 boxes. It seems a little bit excessive to bring 400 boxes of books and then also where would they keep them when the Duponts arrived here. But I'm most interested in that sort of transatlantic intellectual culture and the knowledge that French refugees brought to the United States and how that sort of culture and knowledge um, informed Americans after the revolution. All right, Um, and what are you finding based on that? So there's not a really solid list of the books that the Duponts brought here. We have some packing lists that Victor Dupont wrote while he was in France, but that's all we have about the original collection of books that the Duponts would have brought here around 1802, 1804. And most of those books have just been filed in the library with other French language books. So it's very difficult to actually like identify the true collection 
and there's not really a good list. So in some ways it ended as a dead end that I wasn't able to actually pull together. I spoke with one of the reference librarians downstairs to see if he could help me put together a list of the actual books that traveled across the Atlantic Ocean with the DuPonts. He's been trying to figure that out for 10 years. So it's a bit of a mystery that sort of has, um, and I guess what happened too was as time went on, the DuPonts gifted many of their books to children and grandchildren. And as certain family members passed away, their libraries were dispersed all over the Eastern seaboard. And I think in the 1950s, there was an effort by the Hagley Library to contact some of those family members and recollect some of the original DuPont books, but it's very partial and there's not a very reliable list. So that was sort of like a quest for me that ended in a little bit of a dead end. Nicole told me about the major source of her research at Hagley, the diary of a wealthy American socialite. The second major collection that I've been looking at is the Margaret Izard Manigault papers. And this is a fascinating diary that I read. She's a, a woman leader of Charleston's merchant planter elite during the early national period. And her diary, which started in about 1793 and ends in 1809, just before her husband's death, really focuses on the web of social, political, economic connections that linked New York, Charleston, and Philadelphia high society. Margaret Izzard's father, Ralph Izzard, was a member of the Continental Congress in 1782 and 1783, and then he was elected to the United States Senate. He served from 1789 to 1795, about six years. And her mother, Alice Delancey, was part of the, the Delancey clan of New York City, and they were the family was partially ruined by their loyalist stand during the American Revolution, but they still retained entry into high society in New York. So Margaret Izzard is a, you know, a product of two major families from leading families, one from Charleston, one from New York City. So she was familiar with the absolute highest levels of American society. She's probably one of the most highly educated women in America at the time. And her diary is fascinating. She mentions more than 275 names in her diary, which just shows the, the sort of large cast, you could say, of friends, a family of connections that helped maintain her place in high society. And she mostly documents domestic and social activity. She mostly talks about the health of her children, but she records almost daily what it took to maintain her status in American society. She is an endless and what I think must have been an exhausting number of calls. And when someone came to visit you, you had to return that visit. And if you hosted a party, then you had to go to that person's party who came. And what I find in her diary is a sort of reluctance, you know, that she sort of drags herself. Oh, we have to go make calls this morning. Oh, I wish we didn't have to go to this woman's house oh, I went to this party and it was such a bore and the food was miserable. And she sort of complains about having to keep up with American society, that the, the sort of rigors of high class, um, of maintaining, I like to use the word maintenance of high society and what it took to be part of that class was really exhausting, I think. And that's what I find from her diary is that there's a, there's a really deep sort of reluctance 
but also, um, what did she say? Like not, so it's, she's reluctant, but she also feels like she has to do it. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Like this is what it takes to be an American elite. She feels an intense guilt, I think, in her diary about not being able to keep up or that the the consequences of refusing a call or refusing a visit or she's constantly shopping. She's constantly shopping. And what I found is funny in her diary is that she goes shopping. She'll come home and note in her diary, I bought some lace today. I have no idea how much it costs, but I needed it for a dress to go to a party. So she's totally unconcerned with the costs of maintaining so of like the maintenance of her class status, but she sees it as a necessary obligation, not just for her, but also for her husband and her children and her mother. And um, she's also, she sometimes mentions politics. She comments a little bit on the Haitian revolution when um, a planter, an elite planter from Haiti ends up at a, a party with her and she just, she sympathizes with the white planter class, certainly of Haiti. She also comments a bit on slavery and emancipation. She is a slave owner. And what's fascinating is the way that she apologizes for slave owners who don't treat their slaves properly. And she sees herself as sort of the benevolent mistress. And that when, especially in 1809, Margaret, um, she traces every day. She does like a very intricate diary entries for almost a month as her family travels from New York to Charleston in a wagon. And as they're traveling through Virginia and North Carolina, they stop at different taverns overnight to break. She finds that at these taverns, she wants to get a room for her slave, Marianne, who's sort of like her personal slave. She calls her a servant and the tavern refuses to give a room to a black slave. And, Mar and Margaret just thinks that this is this is disgusting. How can you not get, she's like, when we are at home, my servant Marianne has a bedroom. She has a carpet on her floor. She has a bureau. If these people only knew what it means to properly treat a slave, then it's just terrible how they treat black people here in Virginia. So she truly sees herself as sort of the benevolent mistress who that Marianne would have such a, a terrible time if she were free that she's better off as a slave and that freedom for someone like Marianne um, would certainly mean poverty and hunger. But she as the benevolent mistress is taking care of Marianne and giving her a carpet on her floor and things like that. And she doesn't understand why freedom could possibly be better than being with her. At one point, Margaret has a very long diary entry about the day when her mother's servant slave runs away and she cannot for the life she cannot understand why a slave would run away she just sort of perseverates on the idea that without a master a slave you know a black person would certainly just fall into poverty and hunger and shame and certainly couldn't last very long without the protection the and the care of a master. So she truly sees it as a sort of maternal relationship between master and slave. And I think, I mean, she travels to New York with about three, maybe five slaves. And then certainly 
um, her husband's plantations in South Carolina. It's never clear exactly how many slaves they owned in South Carolina, but she travels with three to five at any time. And like, so, and they're modeling themselves, like they're really making sure that they're modeling themselves along French lines. I think especially Margaret Manigault is, and she's an excellent example. She was born in Charleston, and when she was three years old, her parents took her to France, and the family moved to France. So she grew up in France from the time she was three years old until she was 15. She, and then she was educated not only in France, but also in England and Germany. Then when she was 15, she came back to Charleston, married Ralph Azard almost immediately, and started a family of her own. And at least for Margaret, she's an excellent example of a trans, of like a woman who was just so connected transatlantically. And she notes in her diary all the books that she's reading. And she has books sent to her from France. And she has furniture delivered to her from France. She often will have exclamations that she writes in French in her diary, like things that she just couldn't find the words to say in English, usually come out in French. And she's fascinated when French refugees from the French Revolution come to Philadelphia and she tells pages and pages of stories about being at a ball with um, Moreau, General Moreau and his wife, and how she dances and how she dresses and their manners and he compliments her on her French and she just thinks that's the highest of all compliments is to have, you know, a French aristocrat compliment her on her, on her beauty and her poise and her behavior and her language. And I think that sociability is really so important to her to be able to mimic what the French aristocrats are doing. So especially for a woman like Margaret Manigault, who is just, who was raised in France and it's just such a part of her that she's always looking to France as an example and as a model of how to behave and how to act. I wonder um, if there are any DuPont connections there because Victor Marie worked at the console there. You're right, exactly. So, and that is how the Hagley came to acquire Margaret Manigault's diaries. That Margaret Manigault was very, very close friends with Victor Dupont's wife and considered her a close, close confidant. They have a massive correspondence that's over in the archives at the Soda House. And when Margaret Manigault died, I assume her children had said, let's give her diary to her closest confidant, Mrs. Dupont. So that's how the diary came to the library here. It was Victor, Victor's okay. wife. They're close, close friends. And when Victor goes bankrupt in New York City, Margaret Manigault has a, a long diary entry where she just cannot get out. She, she's just in shock that a family like the DuPonts, that she just has so much admiration and respect for Mrs. DuPont. And she has the highest praise for this woman. And she's heartbroken almost mm -hmm. you can hear in her diary how heartbroken she is that this woman now has nothing she's like this woman has nothing she has to leave everything that she had in new york and that's when she when victor dupont and his family moved down to the brandy wine after his failed land speculation schemes in new york yeah it seems i'm always fascinated to hear about anything pertaining to victor because he was like the elder brother and sort of the um the wild card <laughs> He had so many failed, and he just had so many failed ventures, yeah. you know, as compared to E.I. DuPont, who just did so well, and you almost feel like the older brother had to 
sort of bow his head down and accept defeat and move in with his brother with his younger brother you know and actually when victor goes back to france later he brings margaret and ralph azard's son harry with him and harry spends several years with victor sort of under his wing and educates him in terms of economics and history and i think harry's about 15 or 16 he's a teenager when he goes to france with victor for several years and this is something that ralph and margaret Azar just feel as if they can never repay the favor to the duponts and they feel like they're always in debt to the duponts for taking their son to france for his education and they just always shower the duponts with praise and i think that's the sort of relationship that i'm so fascinated by is the the sort of connection between an aristocratic french family like the duponts and then the the Izards and the manigolds who are just you know of the highest levels of american society and how these two families forge connections with each other that are based largely on french aristocratic you know adoration that they they get along with each other because margaret and Mrs. Dupont can speak French together and they have tea together and they have this like very deep French connection. And that's how these two elite American families, you know, that's how they stayed connected to each other was through like a, a shared adoration for France. The diary was like my big, it was yeah. like my golden nugget. It's like nothing I've ever read before, you know, like this personal diary that just tracks the quotidian daily life of high society really fascinating. She references almost 300 people by name. Mm-hmm. That's... Which is incredible when I think about, okay, how many people do I have in my Google contacts? Maybe a hundred. You know, when you think about how many people do you talk to every day? Yeah. And then her diary, I think, is this fascinating, fascinating example of what, of the, of what it took to maintain class status to keep your, your head afloat in the American elite. To learn more about Hagley's grants and fellowships, search our collections, and listen to more stories from the stacks, visit hagley.org research. That's H-A-G-L-E-Y dot org.